Romans 9, 1 through 29. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and, the, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Guys, can... Have a seat. Let me pray. Whoops, I'm on the wrong page here. Uh, let me let me pray as we get started. Lord, uh, thank you so much for um, uh, your word, uh, for uh, your faithfulness, for. Uh, your sovereignty over all things, God, without which we uh, would have um, no hope in this sinful world and with no hope with our sinful hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would be submitted to whatever your word says. Lord, that we would uh, have our eyes turned up to you and to the beauty of your character, to the beauty of what you have done for us that we could not do on uh, for ourselves. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
So this morning we jump back into Romans. If you remember, we've been going through Romans since Easter, I guess. And then we took a break for five weeks uh, and talked about Matthew 18. And now we're back into Romans, Romans 9, a chapter that has been debated by theologians at least for 400 years. And so, you know, we'll, we'll settle it this morning, I'm sure. <laughs> they just didn't have me, I guess, you know. No, no, uh, not at all. Not at all. So this is a passage that, that um, I've wrestled with uh, and a topic that I've wrestled with and, and wrestled with for some time. Um, the issue in theological terms is called election. God's election. And there is no question within Orthodox Christianity that every Christian is elect by God. That's just, well, it's just too clear in Scripture. It's repeated over and over again. The issue comes in our understanding of how God elects believers or on what basis he does so. And the real question, the real question that we'll see in this passage is this. Is God sovereign over salvation? Is God sovereign over salvation? At the most fundamental level, is salvation based on your choice or on God's choice? Is it your freedom or is it God's freedom that has authority? To understand Romans 9, we need to first remember where we've been. And so we took a few weeks off, and so I'll try to remind you briefly where we've been as we have gone through Romans. We started the series by saying that the whole book of Romans is about how the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's telling them this is the gospel, and this gospel must shape what you as a church believe and what how you as a church ought to behave. And you remember, we have the gospel, how God loves and saves sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the gospel leads to certain gospel truths, truths that are evident because they flow out of the truth of the gospel. They are not the gospel itself, but they're vital to the gospel and they come out of the truth of what Christ has done. And then out of that, there are gospel behaviors. So because of these truths, then this is how we ought to live. This is how we ought to behave. This is what we ought to do. Okay. And the first eight chapters, they're not exclusively about gospel beliefs or gospel truths to the exclusion of gospel behaviors, but, but it has been he heavily weighted, I'd say, towards what do we believe based on the gospel? What are our gospel beliefs? And Paul explained in the first eight chapters that we're all, all of us are born into sin, that none of us seek God on our own. We don't pursue God. It's, and the just result of our sin is God's wrath. Then, that it's only by faith in Christ that any of us can be found righteous. It's not by our heritage, he said. It's not by our works. It's not by anything that we've done. Nothing else. It's solely by faith in Christ. And that faith, it leads to growth and holiness. But even still, chapter 7, we struggle with sin, right? We have indwelling sin even, even as we have the Spirit dwelling in us. Yet, we're empowered to live by the Spirit because we are believers. And we have, uh, in chapter 8, it talks about we have this wonderful confidence and this wonderful hope that if God is God, he'll fulfill his promises and he'll finish what he has started in us. And so we have this wonderful hope that if we're called, and we're sa then we're saved. And if we're saved, then we're kept. And if we're kept, then we'll be glorified one day with him. And so all of that leads up to this chapter. And we'd expect We'd expect at this point that there would be the shift towards gospel behaviors. And Paul's kind of laid everything out all the way to, hey, you will be glorified one day. 
And we'd expect that, that Romans 12, 1 and 2 would happen. Now, now therefore, because of the mercy, these mercies, right, because of the mercies of God, live like this. But that's not what Paul does. For his original audience, for the Roman church, that would have been jumping the gun. For them, there's one major, one enormous, one obvious issue that would leave them absolutely puzzled at this point, one that today we might miss. And the question is this, if the gospel is this great fulfillment of all of God's salvation promises, then why are so many Jews rejecting Jesus? Were the promises false or was Jesus false? Because it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem like the promises that we know from the Old Testament are actually being fulfilled because, because the vast majority of Jews are rejecting Christ. So how can we trust this? If It's that question that Paul anticipates and answers in chapters 9 through 11. It's that question that he must answer for his audience before he can move on to this then how, is how you ought to behave. Because if there isn't a trust in God's promise for salvation, then how will the Romans trust God in all the difficult circumstances that they're going to face and are facing? How will they trust God to follow through on all the difficult commands that Paul is going to give them in the last few chapters of Romans. If they're still shaken by this question, has God's promises failed? But the good news in it is this, and this is the bottom line of our sermon, and I think the bottom line of the passage, that God's salvation is certain because God sovereignly elects. You see, if, if God is not free to choose, then how is he truly sovereign over salvation? And if he isn't truly sovereign over salvation, how can he be sovereign over your life? And if he can't be sovereign over your life, then how can you trust him for anything in this life or in the next? Listen, God's going to call you to do some hard things, church. Christian, God is going to call you in your life to do some hard things. I promise. He's going to command of you some things that are going to seem very difficult. What undergirds that? Is it God's sovereign will? Or is it your will and ability? Before we jump into the first section here, Paul, Paul he gives us this preface. I almost wish that I would preach the whole another sermon on just these first five verses because it really, it's really a, a preface to all of chapters 9 through 11. And in this preface, he expresses both his love for his fellow Jews that he would even, if he could, lose his salvation that they would, be, would gain it. And he also recognizes the great privileges they've had as a people group, having a, a special role, if you will, in salvation history, the law, a special uh, role, I suppose, in the law and God and how he's relating to them in a, in a unique way, the greatest of which is the reality that Jesus came in the flesh as a Jew. And Paul knows, he knows he'll be misunderstood. He knows that what he's about to say, what he has said and what he's about to say is going to be misunderstood by some. In fact, he already knows that because there are already those who call, have been calling him anti-Jewish for his gospel preaching. He knows what he's about to communicate is a hard truth for Jews to hear. But rather than saying, listen, rather than saying, they're going to call me it anyway, so who cares how I say this? I'm just going to kind of let it rip because it's true. Rather, he takes the time to emphasize, even swearing an oath, which is no small thing for Paul, to make clear his love for his fellow Jew. 
to make clear his love for them. These people to which in some sense he still belongs, even as he calls them in the passage brothers. Yet, his love for them and for the gospel compels him to be very clear. If he only cared about gospel clarity, then he'd, he'd just say what he was going to say. No preface. No, no need for preface. But he cared about gospel clarity in order that some may be saved. And I challenge you briefly, and this is maybe a little bit of an extra credit challenge, uh, believers, church, that if we care about people in our lives and even people who call themselves Christians having gospel clarity in order that they might be saved, in order that they might have a deeper relationship with Christ, in order that they might have more confidence in Christ. I think we ought to take a page out of Paul's playbook. We ought to make sure that we emphasize our love for those people, even as we are clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And so here's my preface this morning. Listen, some of you have struggled and will struggle with the doctrine of election. I know because I I have as well. Many people have. Here's my ask of you. Come to this passage open-handed. Come to this passage open-handed. Come asking, okay, God, before I think about this, before I read this, I surrender whatever it says to you. I surrender my preconceived ideas to you. Even if I don't like it, if that's what it says, then that's what I'll believe. You see, what what I was once resistant to and offended by has now become a beautiful truth. A stabilizing factor for the gospel in my heart and a freedom to make Jesus known to others. And so... Listen, I love you all. I want that for you as well. With that said, let's look at three beautiful realities of God's sovereign election from this passage. That God's sovereign election guarantees his promises. That God's sovereign election is based in his character. And that God's sovereign election is our hope of salvation. Those are the three beautiful realities I want to look at this morning. All right. The first beautiful reality of God's sovereign election is that it guarantees his promises. Paul's statement in verse 6 frames it like this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And this is a critical issue. All the Old Testament promises to God's people, the Israelites, don't seem to have worked, or at least haven't worked very well, right? If so many, if Jesus is really the fulfillment of all of these things, and and in him is the gospel, the good news, why have so many Jews rejected him? And Paul's answer is that God's salvation promises are based in his sovereign election. See, understanding God's promises helps us to understand his election and understanding what his election is helps us to understand how he's fulfilled his promises. And so there's two misunderstandings in verses 6 through 13 that he's going to clear up. Who are these promises made to and on what basis are these promises made? And Paul says right away, not all who descended, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And you're, you're like, That's kind of confusing at first, right? Isn't that kind of like, I don't know, is that an oxymoron or something? I'm not sure what the right term is for that, but it seems contradictory anyway. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's confusing until you understand that he's actually referring to two different groups of people. The first Israel is ethnic or national Israel. The second Israel, Israel is spiritual Israel. You see, not everyone who is a physical, earthly uh, part of Israel is part of the spiritual, eternal covenant people. 
of God. Later, he says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, that is his physical offspring. Not all who are physical offspring of Abraham are children of the promise to Abraham. Back in chapter 4, Paul was already starting to talk about this. Paul included Gentiles as Abraham's spiritual offspring. Do you remember that? That by faith, these Gentiles are actually Abraham's children, even though they're not his blood children. Paul's point here is slightly different. His point here is that even if, even if they share Abraham's blood, if they don't share his faith, then they don't share his promise. Do you get that? Early in, earlier in chapter 4, Paul said, hey, the Gentiles get added in. Here he's clarifying that not all who have Abraham's blood that are his descendants are actually in in the first place. But they must have faith in the promise to Abraham, just as Abraham had that same faith. In much the same way, we'd say that if someone calls themselves a Christian, if they go to church, if they act like a Christian, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a Christian. If they don't have faith in Christ, then they're not saved. So God was making this point loud and clear as Paul explains in the first two generations from Abraham, uh, in those first two branches from a family tree, you remember Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac, right? Not to mention the other kids that he had. But it was Isaac to the exclusion of Ishmael and his descendants through whom Abraham's offspring would be named. That's where the promise lies, not in the flesh but in God's choice of Isaac. And then you remember Isaac's son, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, and yet the promise was made to Isaac, the second born. The second born was chosen, not the first. And it was Jacob, not Esau, whose name was changed to Israel, right? But on what grounds were these promises made? Verse 11 says a lot. It says, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that, so this decision was made before they were born, when they had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might remain, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul makes, wants to make it abundantly clear. That, Paul's, that, that God's choice was not based on anything that anyone has done, but it was solely his choice. That those promises were not based on anything that anyone had done, but it was solely his choice. God called them. It was his decision. Not only was it his decision, but it was his plan all along. And it continues to be his plan. That the, that the purpose of election might continue. You see, if God's plan is ultimately grounded in the choice of sinful people, well, then all, then, then, then we all ought to wonder if God's word has or will fail. Because I don't know about you, but I fail all the time. But it doesn't. It never has. It never will fail precisely because it never has been nor ever will be based on anything other than God's choice. And some have tried to say that this means that God's election is just kind of willy-nilly. It's like when I was a kid, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. We'd get like a, a globe, you know, one of those ones that kind of spins around and you... And we'd spin that sucker, and then you'd, you'd 
boom, you put your finger down on a spot and you go, I'm going you know, to live here. And you put your finger down, you're like, oh man, Antarctica, I'm going to live in Antarctica, dig it. You know, that, and you do that over and over again. I don't know if you did. Does anyone else do this? Or is it just me and my siblings? Okay. Other people did this. Thank you. I was a little worried there for a second. I just assumed that everyone did this. So we, we kind of think of it like that, like God's just spinning the globe and he's going, oh, I'll save this one and I'll save this one and I'll save this one. And it's kind of like willy nilly. And that's how we might characterize God's election, but that's not how the Bible describes it. It seems unjust to us that he would do it that way. But again, that's not how the Bible describes it. So Paul anticipates this question and asks, is there injustice on God's part? Does this make God unjust because he does this? Because it's based on his choice. And Paul's emphatic rebuttal is, by no means, by no means is he unjust. And he's going to explain in this second beautiful reality of God's sovereign election that it is based on God's character. It is based in his character, not in your character. And thank goodness that it's that way. We'd expect at this point some sort of explanation, some sort of apologetic for election to show why it's just and why it's right. But as it turns out, Paul only feels the need to prove his point by relating to us two standards, what God says and who God is. But this whole purpose of election, this whole doctrine of election is based in, God's choice is based in who he is and what he says. We want to know how exactly the mechanics of election work. For honest, the reason we want to know that is so that we can examine God by our standards and decide if we think that God is fair. We want to be judge and jury over God. Instead, what Paul does is he invites us to remember who God is, what God has done, and what he says. In verses 15 through 17, Paul uses Moses and Pharaoh as an example, this formative moment for the nation of Israel, right? Their deliverance from Egypt. And it's no mistake that in both instances here, Paul intentionally uses scriptures wherein God himself is speaking to his own actions and nature. I want you to notice as we go through this passage, remember that started with, has God's word failed? That it is absolutely littered with Old Testament passages and references. That Paul goes, okay, you think that God's word maybe has failed? I will show you using almost entirely his word to show you that it has not. So it's no mistake that, that both of these uh, instances are moments in which God himself is speaking to his own actions and nature. Verse 15 is the first one, and it's a reference to Exodus 33, uh, a little setup. This is right after the golden calf debacle, right? The whole golden calf thing happens, and they say, okay, like, uh, I know who God said he was, but we, we're going to fashion this God who saved us from Israel uh, or from Egypt. We're going to fashion him in the way that we want to. We're going to make a golden calf and say, oh, thank you, golden calf, for bringing us out of Egypt. The golden calf is the Lord when God had just told them not to do that. How ironic. A situation where people don't like how God is doing something, so they try to reinvent what God looks like based on their standards rather than submitting to who God says he is. So right after that, Moses, he wants to see God. He wants to know God's name, it says, so that God's favor would be on Moses and God's favor would be guaranteed to his people. See, after the people's shenanigans, Moses is looking for a way to guarantee God's blessing and presence. And he thinks, if I can see God in, in this, this magnificent way, in this unique way, 
In this special way, I, I will know him, and that will kind of lock in his presence with us. It will lock in his presence with me. It will make sure that I am, that we are chosen, his chosen people. But God says, it doesn't work like that. I know you. I choose to have favor on you. You don't do something that makes me have to have favor on you. And there are two pieces in this. God's intimate covenant relationship with his people and God's sovereign election of those people. And Moses wants to leverage the relationship to guarantee that he remains chosen. But God says, that's not how it works. It's only because I have chosen you. It's only because of my sovereign election that you get to be my covenant people. And that, that is guaranteed. See, God will have mercy and compassion on whom he chooses. Even for Moses, who's the mediator for God's people, who talks to God face to face, right? It's not because he's so great. It's not because Moses has done such great things. It's because God chose Moses. Paul doubles down on this. Verse 17, the context of verse 17 is Exodus 9. So rewind a little bit. The people are still in Egypt. Pharaoh, who is rejecting God, who's hardened his heart against God, God hardens his heart. And God says, raised up Pharaoh. That in his hard-hearted actions, God's power to save his people might be on full display. The reality that God has chosen these people and he, that God is God and he will save his people that he chooses is on full display. And so verse 18, it concludes, so then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's point is that our freedom to choose God is wholly dependent on God's freedom to choose us. Sproul, I think in his book, Chosen by God, which is a much better explanation of all this than I can do, he puts it like this. He says, if, if one person's freedom to choose, if one per, per, the freedom of one person's will comes up against another, the freedom of another person's will, the one whose freedom wins out is the one who actually has authority. And so if, say, in your family, your kid wants to do whatever, and as long as it's within the realm of what you are okay with them doing, you give them freedom to do that, right? But as soon as their freedom of choice comes up against your freedom of choice, parent, as soon as they say, I want to do this, and you say, no, you're going to do that, we find out who has the authority, right? I hope it's you, parent. Similarly, with God, whose authority is supreme? Who gets supreme freedom to choose? The natural question that follows is this. Why does he find fault then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, it says. Indeed, this is the very question we ask, right? Before we jump into Paul's response, I want to draw your attention to the ways in which we might expect him to respond, but he does not respond that way. First, he makes no reference here to human actions. He doesn't say, for instance, well, you have to understand just how bad of a dude Pharaoh was. And once you understand just how bad he, he really was, I mean, he's much worse than, you know, you might expect. Then you'll understand why God hardened his heart. He doesn't use that line of reasoning. Second, he doesn't isolate God's hardening to particular cases. He doesn't say, well, God was justified to harden Pharaoh's heart because it was just necessary in order for God to deliver his people, in order for salvation history to happen. He doesn't use that line of reasoning. 
that, well, this is just a unique case in order to, to kind of help bring things about. No. Paul uses neither of these explanations that I think you might hear today. In fact, Paul never presents what we would call a reasoned argument for the coexistence of God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility at all. And yet, at the same time, Romans 9 through 11, as you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, affirms both of them. That God is truly, ultimately sovereign, and also we have real responsibility as human beings. He does not say this is how they're both true. Instead, he simply affirms, as does the rest of Scripture, that they are both true. See, we make the mistake. We make a mistake in trying to understand God's sovereign election or anything about God when we start to make assumptions rather than coming to Scripture. When we start with, uh, do I think, rather than starting with, does Scripture say? What explanation does Paul offer? He uses this illustration of a potter and clay. It's simple enough to understand. Have you ever made uh, pottery? Anyone ever made pottery? You know, you get the wheel and the... I took a pottery class my senior year of, of high school. Yeah. Yeah, it was... I still have a few things from that. It was, I was quite the potter, not really. He uses this illustration of a potter and clay to say who we are as the creation, who, who are we, I should say, as the creation to question how or why the creator creates in the way that he creates. I'm, I'm telling you, if my senior year in pottery class, if my pot turned to me and said, why did you do that? I don't like being this shape. Like I would have been bolting out of that room, right? Like, no, that's not how this works. I decide. I decide what you're going to be. I decide what shape you're going to take. I decide how you're going to be used. Is it not the freedom of the creator to make what he wishes and do what he wishes with his creation? And a person might say, wait, wait a second. So you're saying, Cody, that God is above any standard of right and wrong? just solely because he's the creator? But Paul, by, Paul doesn't appeal to that kind of questioning. He merely states what God says and who God is as creator. And, and I think this is why, because I think Paul wants to communicate to his audience that it's not that God is above any standard, but that God is the standard. It's not that God gets to be above some standard of right and wrong, but God in his character defines what is right and wrong. So if you want to know what's right and wrong, look at who God is here rather than inventing something else. Rather than lowering God down to human categories, Paul wants to turn his readers' eyes and minds up to God's very nature as the category for understanding everything. He's not trying to bring the character and majesty of God down to a level where, where we can understand how he operates as if that's possible. He's trying to elevate our hearts to see that God's character and nature is incomprehensibly beautiful. Like looking upon A wonderful scene, like climbing to the top of a mountain at sunset or at sunrise and standing there and going, I don't understand how, but I'm awestruck that this is. See, God in his very nature from the very beginning is a choosing God. From Abel to Noah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Joseph to Moses to the judges to David to the prophets to disciples to you, church. 
God has been choosing from the beginning and he will choose till the end. From the same lump, God makes vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use in order that all of his character and all of his nature can be known and displayed and we can look upon it in awe because of how awesome it is. If it were not for his wrath and power and justice, then we would not know his patience and his mercy and his glory. In fact, in the very rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the question that started this whole section, it was that rejection that prepared the way for not only some of the Jews, but also many, many of the Gentiles to be saved. What appeared to be a shot against God's power and promise to save in his providence has become a revelation of greater salvation than anyone could have expected. The third beautiful reality of God's sovereign election is this, that it is our hope of salvation. And Paul's going to use three quotes here at the very end. to show how that is. Paul's going to make clear that without election, we have no hope of being saved or of God being able to finish what he started and ensure our salvation. Paul presents election as this marvelous testimony of God's grace and the foundation for our hope in the gospel. And to do so, Paul's going to turn to these prophets to prove his point that God's word, by God's word, hasn't failed. In verses 25 and 26, if you see there, there's a quote. It's from Hosea, and it shows us God's character in graciously saving Gentiles. You see, originally, this passage from Hosea, it was to reveal how God would take back the, re the rebellious and adulterous northern tribes of, of Israel, and he'd bring them back, and the people who are not his people would become his people, and those who are not beloved would become beloved, and they would make them sons of the living God. But Paul takes this already shocking story of Hosea, and of Hosea's family. And surprisingly, he finds its ultimate fulfillment not in bringing back rebellious Jews, but in the inclusion of Gentiles into God's family. That truly those who are not his people, that truly those who were not thought to be beloved, that truly those who were not his sons and daughters are now. Hosea proves God can call anyone, and if God calls anyone, then they will, by his decision, become his people. Listen, I don't know where you're at what you've come in to this place this morning with, and you may feel in this moment like there is no way that God could save me. You don't know what I have done. You don't know how far from Christ I have been, how far from God I have been. You don't know the decisions that I've made. There is no way that God would ever love me. There's no way that he would ever call me his son or his daughter. There's no way. Let me tell you, if he chooses to, he does. Because it's not based on what you've done but what God does. So God's people, they've always been his vessels of mercy, his children of promise, his elect, his church for the whole earth is rightly under God's sentence. And yet, he works his salvation. And Paul turns to Isaiah in speaking of the Jews. And the point here isn't to say that Jews can become God's children, right? Because that was the assumed point. That was the default way of thinking. The point is that God must call his two true children out of earthly Israel. Only a remnant of them will be saved. The surprising point is that Jews are not vessels of mercy by default. They're not vessels of mercy because of their ethnicity. They're not vessels of mercy because of anything in them. They can only be vessels of mercy if God chooses. 
them if they are called by him. And the truth is that because of our sin, justice would be for every single one of us to receive God's wrath, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. The truth is that the whole earth is rightly under God's judgment for sin, just like Sodom and Gomorrah was. None would be saved. Not a Jew, not a Gentile, not a person who grew up in the church or a person who didn't. Not someone that you think by your own evaluation is a good person, nor someone that you think by your evaluation is a bad person. None, zero, would be saved. The question, the question isn't how, how could God choose some and not choose others? The question is how could God choose even a single person when we're so sinful, when we've rejected him so fully? In God's wonderful, loving, brilliant character, he found a way to justify us without being unjust. You see, God's non-justice isn't injustice. In Christ, it's mercy. And it can be because it's based in his choice, not in us. This last passage, it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, how could it be that we who should have been under God's wrath are not? How can it be? How did he work this out? That offspring is the seed, Jesus. See, the offspring of Abraham that matters is one person. Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. What we'll find in the next few passages next week to be the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense to those who reject him, but to those who believe him, they will not be put to shame. Through that offspring have come children of promise. God's elect from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language all over the world. The beauty of God's sovereign election is that it is our only hope for salvation at all. You see, we, we all have people in our lives who are not following Jesus, who've rejected God, maybe even after seeming to be part of a church, maybe even after seeming to be pretty good people, doing pretty good things, maybe Maybe people who you would say, man, that's a better person than even my church friends, right? Right, you know that person who's not a believer and you're like, man, they actually are, I would say, a better person than my friends at church. You go, man, how? We hear about God's election and we think, how could it be? that this terrible person is chosen and this, this good person isn't. We inherently, we see God's election as restrictive, but what I want you to understand is without God's election, no one will be saved. That it's only by God's election that anyone is included. Don't believe the lie that it must depend on us, that we must choose, that we must sell Jesus to people well enough that they would choose him. That's a weight that you can't carry. That you weren't meant to carry. The consequence of that belief is that salvation depends on us, how, we proclaim, how well we proclaim the gospel, how good our arguments are, how perfect our lives are, how well we parent, how well we disciple our kids, how well we do whatever. Salvation begins to revolve around us rather than revolving around Jesus and what he has done. And here's the beauty of election, God's, guys. God's salvation is certain because God sovereignly elects. Listen, if there's someone in your life that you feel like, man, they are, they are so far gone. No matter how adamantly 
and visibly someone rejects God right now. Yes, they must choose Jesus. But that doesn't ultimately depend on you or on them. It depends on God. And we'll find out in chapter 11 what our responsibility is in that, to declare the gospel. And that is our responsibility. But we must first understand that that weight does not ultimately fall on us. Because if we allow that weight to fall on us, it will lead us to fear and hopelessness. Fear of all the ways that we get it wrong, have got it wrong. Hopelessness to see those people ever loving Jesus. Guys, I'll say this again. If you come in here and you think, I'm too far gone, or you think, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I, then I've done this thing or that thing, and am I really saved? I want you to know it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. It depends on God. God's salvation is certain because God sovereignly elects. And because he sovereignly elects, he sent his son to redeem those whom he has elected on the cross. He sent his son to die on the cross to definitively win salvation for his elect, for his church. And that's what we celebrate in communion. So as we take communion this morning, I want you to consider that before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God chose you, Christian. Before the foundation of the world, before you ever did anything, God set his love on you. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to send his own son. This wasn't plan B or C or D. It was the only plan from the beginning to send his son to die on the cross for you. How beautiful that is.